Okay, so last week, Matt kind of gave us the 30,000 foot flyover of Exodus, right? We got some of the general themes, we got some of the ideas, we saw some of the main characters, and tonight we're going to jump into chapter one, but before we do, I wanted to give us just a little bit more background on the book. I kind of wanted to look at the, the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why, That's kind of how I think of introducing a book. When I think of a book and I begin to study a book, those are the kind of the main questions I want to know about that book. Who's it about? Um, Where did it happen? When did it happen? Why? What are we supposed to be understanding? So we're going to jump into that and then we're going to look at the actual chapter one. So the first question is this, who? Who is Exodus about? Chapter one, verse one tells us, These are the names of the sons of Israel. Exodus is about this group of people that's known in the Bible as the sons of Israel or the nation of Israel or the sons of Abraham or the sons of Jacob. It is this group that God has chosen to be involved with through the entire Old Testament. And as we jump into Exodus, we have to realize we're coming into the middle of a story And you have to have the background. So I'm going to give you the quick background of what we have to know about these people as we continue forward with Exodus. Okay, so this is Genesis summary in about three minutes. All right. So Genesis starts out in the beginning, God creates everything and it's good. Right. And then Adam and Eve are created and they're good. And then Adam and Eve, do they do great things? No. And then from there, for the next 10 chapters of the book of Genesis, we get these little snippets into history, into man. We see Cain and Abel, right? We went from eating the forbidden fruit to killing our brother, right? We see over and over again that mankind is not doing well. And it's thousands of years that are flying by as we go from Genesis 1 to Genesis 10. And then in about Genesis 10, 11, and 12, the, the timeline just zoom slows down. And in Genesis 10, what happens is God divides the nations. There's the power, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And then in Genesis 12, God chooses one man. His name is Abraham. God doesn't choose him because he's extra special. God chooses him because he's God. And he loves him. Same reason God chose me. Not because I'm extra special, because he's God and he loves me. Same reason God chose you. Same reason God chooses all of us. So God chooses this man named Abraham. Abram, actually, God renames him. And then God comes down to Abram and he makes him some promises. It is why, as you look at the New Testament, the children of Israel or the Hebrews are sometimes referred to as the sons of promise. Hebrews chapter four. Because their identity really is wrapped up in the promises that God made them. And we have to understand these promises if we're to understand what we need to see about Exodus. The first one is made in Genesis 15, 5. And it says this. And he brought him outside. Yeah, there we go. And he brought him outside and said, this is God talking to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The first promise, the first part of what's known as the Abrahamic covenant is God telling Abraham, a man who is in his late 80s or 90s and has no children, 
I'm going to give you millions of descendants. Look up at the stars, Abraham. That's how many kids you're going to have. God's first promise is to multiply Abraham. It's his first promise. Then God makes a second promise. It's verse 15, 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. The second promise that God makes to Abraham is this land that you're standing on, Abraham, this land of Canaan, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. It is going to be your land, your possession. And then God makes a third promise. It's in Genesis 22. God says this, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and here's the promise in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Three promises to Abraham. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to give you the land you're standing in now and the entire world will be blessed because of your family. Hugely important for us to understand that. It's known as the Abrahamic covenant. So then as we go through the rest of Genesis, what happens? God keeps his promise. Abraham has a son, one son. That's not a lot of multiplication yet, but we'll get there. Named Isaac. Isaac has a son, two sons named Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Now we're talking. Now we can move this party along. And we know the story of Jacob's 12 sons. One of his youngest son is named Joseph. Joseph's brothers put him into slavery, send him down to Egypt. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, saves the nation. All of the brothers move down to Egypt where they settle, Genesis 47, 48, 49, and 50. And then hundreds of years go by and Exodus chapter one. So that fills us in on the who this book is about. Second question, what is it? What is this book? Not what is it about? We'll cover that in the why question, but what? This book is the second book of Moses, also known as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or the Pentateuch, or the law. Most people believe it was written by Moses. Um, There's some fringe ideas out there but it's referred to as the book of Moses. It's one of the five books that Moses wrote. It is a book of the Bible, the entire book of Exodus. And remember this as we're getting near the end and we're talking about all the tabernacle laws and rules. The apostle Paul probably had this book memorized. That's how important it is. And you'll see this book quoted over and over and over again. Jesus quotes it directly from Exodus seven times. Paul alludes to it many, many more times. Hugely influential, hugely important book. Where? Who, what, where? Genesis 47 tells us that Israel settles in the land of Goshen. I think we have a map. There it is. Ancient Goshen. It is in the northeastern part of Egypt in the Nile Delta. There's a couple other cities we're going to talk about tonight. And ancient archaeological evidence shows them right there in the area of the land of Goshen. It's interesting as you go through Exodus, there are things that everybody disagrees on. And there's some things that everybody agrees on. Everybody agrees on where Goshen is. There's no arguments. That's where it is. So that's where our story is going to take place. The bigger question is this. When? When did Exodus happen? 
When was this? There are two major theories, two major camps, really, about when this book took place. They are the earlier date and the later date. The earlier date being 1446 B.C., and the later date being 1290 BC. Now remember, BC is counting down towards zero, and then we start counting up again just because it wasn't confusing enough, right? So we're, we're moving there to Jesus, and then we move back the other direction. So the older date is 1446. People who favor the older date base this on 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, which says this, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. What this verse does is it dates Israel's exodus by Solomon's temple, and it says it's been 480 years. If you count back from when most people think Solomon's temple was, and you go backwards, you get the earlier date of 1446. Okay, seems straightforward enough. There's some problems with it. This is what the opponents are going to say. Um, first of all, if you go all the way back to 1446, the Pharaoh is Amenhotep II. But in our chapter here, we're going to talk about this, uh, this city being built called Ramses, which makes a lot more sense for Ramses. Most archaeologists who study Canaan and who study um, Israel's conquest of Canaan, say if you go all the way back to 1446, a lot of the cities that we're going to read about in Joshua, if we get there, don't exist. Okay? So people who believe 1446 say, no, the 480 years is literal, and the archaeologists are wrong because, you know, they've been wrong in the past, they'll be wrong in the future, right? We're digging up rocks that are really, really old. It's not an exact science. 1290, the people who believe on that date, they say, no, you have to look at what Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 1 says. They're talking about building a city named Ramses. Ramses the second is Pharaoh in 1446. Also, the that's a hard word to say. How about I don't say it anymore? The old rocks, they say <laughs> that it looks like 1290 is a lot more accurate. But here's the thing. No one knows. They really don't. I was actually having this discussion um, with Matt uh, like a week ago because we actually met and we were talking about this book. And I asked him this question because I was curious. What is the earliest date that everybody agrees on? Right, because to me, that's, that's where you should really start. If you're gonna date things, start with a date that everybody agrees on. And the earliest date, biblically, that everyone agrees on is 597 BC when Babylon comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. Everyone agrees that's when that happened. And as you move further back from that date, um, everybody gets separated on what they think it actually happened. I mean, we have two major dates for Egypt, but really you get anything from 1600 BC to 1000 BC if you read everybody's ideals. And here's the thing. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. And this is the why. You see, Exodus... It's not a history book. It's a character sketch. Oh, oh, it really happened. All of these things really happened, but the minute details or the dates of exactly how or when it happened, they're not what we're supposed to be learning from Exodus. We're supposed to be learning about God's character. Right? It doesn't matter if Amenhotep II or Ramses II is Pharaoh. 
What matters is that Yahweh is infinitely greater than any earthly oppressor. And there will come a time, there will come a day where he will no longer stand for his kids being oppressed and he will crush people, which sounds good. That's revelation. I'm looking forward to that, right? It doesn't matter exactly what body of water is referred to of Israel crossing the Red Sea. What matters is that we serve a God who will show up when there seems like there's no other options, right? It doesn't matter if Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula or if it's in Arabia. What matters is there was a mountain where God came down to tabernacle with his people, to dwell with his people, and that today he calls us his tabernacle and he wants to dwell with us. See, I like all that stuff. I like the date stuff and we can totally geek out about it later, like if you want to. I'm into it. I read a ton of commentaries on it. But I used to think it was way more important than it actually is. I believe it really happened and that through God's divine inspiration, it was recorded for us to study today so that we could learn not about dates and places, but about God's character, because that's what's important. In all the commentaries that I've read on Exodus, there's one quote that I like the best, and it's this. It says, Exodus itself is about knowing God knowing God for who he has made himself known to be rather than for who we might think he is, imagine him to be or wish him to be. Exodus is about knowing who God is. These chapters, these stories, they expose God's character to us. And the more we learn and understand about God's character, the better that we can relate to him and the more deeply and deeply we will fall in love with him. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to jump into Exodus 1, and we are going to look at God's character and what Exodus 1 tells us about the character of God. And what's really interesting about Exodus chapter 1 is it's going to tell us quite a few things about God. It's only also going to tell us quite a few things about this character named Pharaoh. And what's happening, what we're supposed to see is this juxtaposition. Matt talked about it last week, where we're seeing the difference between how God interacts with people and how Pharaoh interacts with people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the entire chapter. It's only 21 verses. And then I want to go back through and look at a bunch of these things. Exodus chapter 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Least they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Quickly, when we were looking at the land of Goshen, the, is, the enemies that Egypt is worried about are coming down from... Uh, Arabia, they're coming down from the land of Canaan. And so Israel is right there in the buffer zone. It's like Egypt is over here. There's 600,000 or 2 million 
foreigners living in their country, and then there's their enemies. And so what Egypt is concerned about is when the enemies come down, Israel will join with them and fight against. That's why it's so interesting to know where Goshen is. Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The first thing that I see, the first thing we're supposed to see about God's character in this story is God keeps his promises. What did God promise Abraham? That he would be multiplied, that his descendants would be great and many. And what does it say in verse seven? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. God keeps his promises. But what's so interesting to me about this chapter and what I have to constantly stand back and look at is three to 400 years have passed since the end of Genesis. And things are not going super great for the Israelites. And it appears that they have not heard much from God. He's been rather silent. And yet even in his silence, he is continuing to keep his promises. See, God has his own timeline. I really wish that I could write God's timeline, right? Like, because what we want is request, answer immediately. But that's not how God works. There's so many other things going on here. We actually learn in another verse of Genesis that one of the reasons that God waits so long is he's giving the Canaanites a chance to repent. That's how good God is. The Israelites don't know that. They just know it seems like God's been silent. And yet the whole time, he is increasing them and multiplying them and keeping his promises. Have you ever gone through a time in your life where you feel like God's a little more silent than you would like him to be? He's still keeping his promises. And it's so important for us to remember that. It is so unbelievably important for us to remember God's promises. I love them. There are 3,573 3, promises in the Bible. 
Isn't that cool? That's a lot of promises. Do you guys know some? Have you, have you really taken some of them into heart? I'll share with you some of my favorites. Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. Isn't that an awesome promise? God promises that. And sometimes we feel like we're on the edge of disaster and that God is maybe a little quieter than we would like him to be. And yet God says, and we know God keeps his promises and he is still working and he is still acting. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. One of my favorites is Romans eight thirty seven. It says this, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. That's just simple and straightforward and awesome, isn't it? Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. When you feel defeated, realize that's a promise that doesn't operate on your timeline, but it's a promise nonetheless. Overwhelming victory. Luke 12, 12. I like this one, possibly because I come up here from time to time, but the Holy Spirit will tell you in that moment what to say. I appreciate that. I find that helpful. Romans 10, 13. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Promises of the Lord are so important for us in our daily life. But here's the interesting thing about most of God's promises. Most of God's promises require participation. So what did God promise the Israelites? That he would multiply them. Now, unless I miss something in health class, that requires participation. Does it not? So many times, God's promises, their promises, and they're for us, but they require our participation. God wants to partner with us. That's what we see here. We're looking at Exodus to see the character of God. God wants a partnership. And he's partnering with his people to multiply them. I think one of the greatest pictures in the Bible of the way that God partners with us is Joshua chapter 3. Okay, so Joshua chapter 3, at the end of Deuteronomy, the Israelites have come. They are finally going to enter in and possess the land of Canaan, God's second promise to them. But the Jordan River is flooded. It's huge. And so what does God say? God says, take the Ark of the Covenant, step into the water, and the water parts. I think it's such a beautiful picture of the way we interact with God and the way his promises work in our lives. First, they step out in faith. Then God does what only God can do, and he parts the waters. But they still have to carry all their stuff to the other side, don't they? That's their part. Step out in faith, and respond to God's answering and miraculous work. It's so important for us to remember this. I mean, look at these promises again. Romans 10, 13. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a part we have to play in that, isn't there? We got a call. Are we calling? The Holy Spirit will tell you in that moment what to say. Are we speaking? Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. Are we fighting? 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Are we seeking? That's our part. And the promises are there for us if we step out and we take them and we participate and we partner with God. It's what he wants us to see here. Because here's the other thing. There's another picture about Israel stepping into God's promises and it's not quite as great as Joshua chapter three. It's Judges chapter three. So Judges chapter three, they've gone through the conquest in Joshua and now God basically says, okay, everyone gets their portion of land. Now go out and finish up mop-up duty, right? We've conquered the big cities. Go out, mop up this area, mop up that area, mop up that area. Let me read for you a couple things from Judges chapter three. I have these highlighted in my Bible, which they're not good things to highlight. I wish I had like a black highlighter I could read through. Like, these are things not to do. Um, I'll do them anyways at some point. Judges chapter three, uh, sorry, Judges chapter one. It says this, verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Ben Shean. 29, Ephraim did not drive out the inhabitants of the Canaanites. Zebulun, did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 37, 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. I call this passage the failure to possess the promise. The promise has been given, but they haven't possessed it. They haven't gone out and fought for it. And these people that they leave in the land, well, they wreak havoc for the rest of the Old Testament, don't they? God has promised us so many things. And he will do the things that only he can do. But he does want us to partner with him. And he does want us to go out and possess those promises that he has given us. It's so important for us to understand. So those are the first two characteristics of God that I see here. God keeps his promises and God wants a partnership. What about Pharaoh? Does Pharaoh keep his promises? No, no, Pharaoh does not keep his promises. Verse eight tells us, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I believe he is willfully ignorant. This is not just ignorance, this is willful ignorance. Joseph single-handedly transformed the landscape of Egypt. It's a really interesting part of the story that we all kind of gloss over, but back in Genesis 47, remember there's the famine and they've stored up all the food and then the people of Egypt come to get the food. They don't just hand it out. Joseph comes up with an ingenious scheme. What actually happens is all the people of Egypt hand the deeds to their land over to Pharaoh in exchange for food. Joseph single-handedly gave Pharaoh the deeds to the entire land of Egypt, wealthy beyond imagination. And the Egyptians kept pretty good records. So Pharaoh should have known that, could have known that. But he decides not to. I I think he's willfully ignorant. And unlike God, Pharaoh forgets. And then the next thing is this. God wants a partnership. What does Pharaoh want? Slaves. Pharaoh wants slaves. It's verse 13. It's a really interesting verse. 
Um, the translation we're going through, most translations kind of massage this verse so that it's easier to read. But I'm going to read it for you again in the literal translation. It says this. So they ruthlessly made, peop- they, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve as servants. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of service in the field. And in all their service, they ruthlessly made them work, they ruthlessly made them serve as servants. You think there's a theme there that is trying to be getting across by this, this verse here? God wants partners. Pharaoh wanted servants or slaves. And it's really interesting for me as I step back from this and we look at kind of what this pictures and symbolizes to us. See, as we go through Exodus, there's a lot of pictures of things in the New Testament. And we're not going to get crazy symbology with some of them because it can get weird. But the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible, is it not? The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And over and over again in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, Pharaoh is put out as this picture of what it's like when we serve someone other than God. So what is it like when we serve someone other than God? Well, the first thing is when we serve anything other than God, it doesn't keep its promises. And we serve things other than God, don't we? Success, image, leisure, pleasure, money, accumulation. These are all things we serve other than God. You know, as we read through Exodus and you see a story like the golden calf, it just doesn't make any sense, right? It's like, why would you, God is up there, the mountain is on fire, Moses is getting the 10 commandments. Why would you make like an image of a cow and worship it? Like cows aren't even that great. But we have to understand that the the image of the cow was representing an Egyptian God, representing an Egyptian God that was supposed to give them something. It was supposed to give them wealth and prosperity, right? So the cow is more than just this image of a cow. It's them literally worshiping or trying to get prosperity. And all the times in the Old Testament when we see Israel turning away and worshiping idols, Baal, Ashtoreth, they're all representative of the same things that we struggle with today. Those same ideas, success, image, leisure, money, accumulation. And anytime we worship any of those things other than God, it's just like worshiping Pharaoh. And the first thing is those things make promises to us and then they break their promises, don't they? Oh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to feel so great. And it does for a little while and then it doesn't. You know, if you just leave this relationship, you know, just, just leave them, you'll be so much happier over here and then you're not. If you just indulge in this, if you just pursue this, that will make you happy, right? But they're false promises, aren't they? See, Pharaoh doesn't keep his promises. And the next thing that we see about Pharaoh that's really interesting in this passage is that Pharaoh always doubles down. So look at this. So interesting to me. First, verse 10 says what? Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Pharaoh starts out deciding that he's going to deal with the children of Israel shrewdly. All right, that doesn't sound great, but it doesn't sound that bad. And then Israel does what Pharaoh needs him to do. They build him two cities, Python and Ramses. Is that enough for Pharaoh? Uh Uh-uh. 
Pharaoh doubles down. So verse 13, he dealt ruthlessly with them. He starts shrewdly, then ruthlessly. They continue to serve. And then finally, he deals with them genocidally, which is probably not a word, but he kills them. This is the progression. It's always the progression when we serve anything other than God. It makes its promises it doesn't keep. Then it influences us. Then it owns us. And then it kills us. That's James 1.14, right? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, step one, by his own desire. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Matt taught on this a couple months ago. The title was Sin Babies. Great message. If you didn't listen to it, or if you forgot it, because it was a couple months ago, podcast it or jump on the website and listen to it again. This is always the progression. When we serve anything other than God, it'll make us false promises and then it will slowly take more and take more and take more and then until it takes everything we have. That's Pharaoh. That's super depressing. But God, on the other hand, he doubles down also. Every time that Pharaoh deals more shrewdly with the people or ruthlessly with the people or even tries to kill the people, what happens? They multiply even more. This is the truth we're supposed to see here. When we serve God, as opposed to serving anything other than God, even when times are hard, even when we're being oppressed, God continues to keep his promises and he gets more and more and more involved. And they multiply and they multiply and they multiply. And one of the big things and themes of these first chapters of Exodus is this. There's no earthly ruler that can thwart God's plans. There's no president or czar or dictator or anything else that can thwart God's plans. He will get his people where he wants his people to be, the promised land. He will get us where he wants us to be, amen? If we participate and follow, we're going to heaven. And that's awesome, amen. God's plans will not be thwarted. That's such an amazing promise. That's, maybe that's my favorite, prom- favorite promise of the night. God's plans will not be thwarted. There's another thing in this chapter that I see when I look at it, and it's, um, it's, it's pretty sobering, honestly, when I look at it. See, Egypt is the richest, most powerful, most advanced society in the world. Sound like anybody else you know? They're wealthy. They have a lot of possessions. They're proud. And as I look at Pharaoh, and as I look at the Egyptians, I see some warning lights for us as people and as a culture. All right? There's two of them in this passage. The first thing I see is this. Why does Pharaoh oppress the people? Is he afraid that they're going to get conquered? That Egypt is going to get conquered? No. Look at what he says. He says it in verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What is Pharaoh concerned about? Money. Pharaoh's concern is financial. 
This giant free workforce that's building my store cities. I have so much I'm building cities to store them in. We have so much we're building mini storages across the country to store it in. I actually forgot to look up the statistics, but it's ridiculous how many mini storages are in America. It's unbelievable. Pharaoh's motivation is financial. And as I stand back and I look at this, I think we have done amazing things as a country. And we're founded on many Christian ideals. But we've also done some horrible things. And the vast majority of any human atrocities we've committed as a country were in the name of financial gain. From Indian oppression to slavery, it's all financial gain. And I look at this and I think it is very, very dangerous when we let our pocketbooks be the major motivation in our political. It's just dangerous. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be prosperous, and, but it is not the main motivation. That is Pharaoh's main motivation. And when our main motivation is money, it becomes very easy to oppress people. Let's take that out of the political arena. Let's just take it to our own selves. Like if you're a business owner or an employer, what is the most expensive line item on your sheet? It's labor, right? So what is the best way to put more money in your pocket? Pay your employees less. It's just the truth. And it's so easy if that is your number one motivation, you start making decisions that are not good for everybody. They're just good for you. They're just good for me. Okay, maybe you're not a business owner. What about just the provider for your house? Have you ever worked? I've done this. Have you ever worked really, really hard, put in a ton of extra hours, trying to get that promotion, trying to get that raise so you would get a little bit more money and you stand back and you look at the end of it and you're like, that was not good for anybody. Like that was oppressive for my marriage. That was oppressive for my kids. And I made that decision simply as a financial one. I didn't stand by, I thought, okay, raise equals more money, that equals good, good plan. And that's where I put my value. And I didn't stand back and be like, no, 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 you gotta count the costs across the board. What is that actually going to cost us? Because here's the thing that makes no sense to me about Pharaoh. The Israelites were happy. They are a two million person buffer between you and the enemy. What happens if Pharaoh loves on the Israelites and blesses them and gives them more stuff? Does he feel threatened or does he feel more protected? Exactly. It makes no sense. But Pharaoh felt his pocketbook threatened and he started making poor decisions. It's a challenging thing to me because, you know, more money seems like it makes life easier in most cases. But I think we always have to stand back and count the costs, especially the human costs across the board. The second thing I see about Pharaoh here is really interesting. You say, how could he do something like this? How could Pharaoh command that babies be killed? That's insanity. And we actually get the key here in verse 19. It says this, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Okay, I would have never got this without reading a bunch of commentaries for people who are way smarter than me. Okay, but the actual implication of the language, this is not a compliment. 
And it's not this weird little lie. What's happening is the Hebrew midwives are repeating to Pharaoh exactly what he believes himself. And what they're actually saying is, those Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women, they're animals. They don't even wait for the midwife. It's dehumanizing. And what it creates is this idea of us versus them. They're different than us. And so it validates anything Pharaoh does to them because it's us versus them. Does anyone feel that we've got a little bit of an us versus them thing going on in our culture? Right, a little bit, right? Like citizens versus illegal aliens, right? Limbaugh versus NPR, hardworking taxpayer versus freeloader, steak eater versus kale eater, right? Jesus culture versus drug culture, Christians versus atheists. It ought not to be that way. What does the Bible say? It says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. One of the things that I took away from studying through the book of Luke was this. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. That's the partnership that God has called us to. We're not against someone who's values are completely different than our own. We are for them. We are sent here to be a beacon on a hill and a light for them so that someday they might know truth and be saved. We're for their salvation. We're for their understanding. We're for their happiness, real happiness, like we've been talking about for the last several weeks. It's not this dichotomy of us versus them. And I think we have to get away from that. I have to get away from that because I can so easily fall into it. And when I do, I, for, I act more like Pharaoh and less like God. Because what does God do with the unforeseen, the outcast, and the different? We see it in this passage. He names them and he blesses them. It's the midwives, right? It says in verse 15, then the, uh, yes, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and one, the other was named Puah. Matt mentioned it last week, briefly, but these are most likely barren women, cannot have kids. And in this society, that is the other. That is a very much devaluing of a person. But what does God do? He names them, which is hugely important. He gives them an identity. He gets to know them. And then what does he do at the very end of it? It says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. How beautiful is that? That's so incredibly beautiful to me. It's what we're called to do. Those who are other, as opposed to an us versus them like Pharaoh, it's us for them. And we name them in a sense. We get to know them as a person, as an individual. And in any way that we can and we're called to, we bless them just like God. And the reason that we do that is because we were the other. I was the other. You were the other. That's the story of the Bible, which is what? I was the outcast and God pursued me and named me and blessed me through his death and burial and resurrection and the salvation that's offered and through all of his promises that he wants to give us. It's so cool to me. It's so beautiful to see that even just in this first chapter of Exodus. It's what God does for us. 
It's what we're called to do for others. We are called to name and bless. And I pray that we do that. I don't think we're gonna break this pattern of us versus them unless we become a people who names and blesses those who we see as other. Hugely important. There's one final thought I have as we leave, and that's this. This story does not end on a happy note, does it? At the very end of this story, in chapter one, you see that everyone in Egypt is commanded to throw Hebrew babies in the Nile. That is not good. That is not a good ending. Chris Martinez was doing worship up here two weeks ago, and he shared this um, thing that someone had said in a staff meeting, and it struck me. And the lady who had come to visit and talk to the staff meeting had been going through some difficult times, and she said this. Maybe you guys remember it. She said, if it's not good, then God's not done. If it's not good, then God's not done. And I was talking to Matt about that. And he was like, well, yeah, you could say that through the entire Bible. And I completely agree, and you could. But we also see in the Bible that God solves problems, right? And then we make more problems, and then God solves problems, and then we make more problems, and then maybe I just see that in my own life, right? (laughs) And here we have this same thing. And what happens is, as I see that trajectory in my life, when I'm in those places of problems, I can realize if it's not good, God's not done. There's a chapter two and a three and a four and a five and a six and God's people will come out of Egypt and God will keep his other promises. They will possess the land of Canaan and someday from the seed of Abraham, from the seed of David, Jesus will come and the entire earth will be blessed because of the Israelites, amen? This story ends really bad, but it's okay because if it's not good, God's not done. Are you in that spot tonight? One of those spots where you're just like, this is not good. Whether of your own being or of a Pharaoh in your life. Here's the last promise for the evening. God's not done. He's not done. And he will continue to work until it's good. Until someday we all get to feast together in heaven and then it will be truly good. Amen? Father, thank you for this passage, for this story, a challenging story, sobering to look at Egypt in light of our culture. Father, I pray that we would fight against those tendencies in all of us to create an us versus them mentality, to pursue money in the sake of people. Father, I pray that we would be like you, that we would name people, get to know people, we would bless them, Father, this world is, um, it's chaotic. And sometimes I look at it and I say, it's not good. And Father, I'm so thankful that that means you're not done. So complete your work in us. Finish us into perfection and draw us closer to you even this night. In Jesus' name, amen.